The following podcast is brought to you by the Fantasy Animation Research Network. Whether you are a fan, a writer, a director, an animator, or a scholar, Fantasy Animation seeks to bring like-minded people together to talk about the relationship between overlapping media, mediums, and genres. For more information, visit fantasy-animation.org. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the second Fantasy Animation Podcast, uh, a wonderful place where we talk about the points of overlap between fantasy and animation. I'm Chris Holliday. And I'm Alex Sargent. And today we're talking about all things fantasy slash animation in relation to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a live action animated hybrid that was released in 1988. Can you believe it was that long ago? I, I can't. I was a mere three years old. Yeah, I was one, so uh, I was well into this movie when I was trying to, you know, master speech. Well, at three, I was an old hand by then. I was, I'd, I'd, I'd seen several animated movies. Um, but I do think the 1980s release is important, and this will become clear uh, as we kind of take you through the film, uh, key scenes, key sequences, etc., but thinking about the film's place within animation history at that time, uh, and of course its status as this sort of live action slash animated fantasy uh, composite in and of itself that combines what we might call realist live action footage with um, a kind of anarchic animated uh, imagery. So why this film? Why did we pick this film as our second in our in our podcast? And re- really, it's the image. It's the, it's the image of Bob Hoskins, who plays Eddie Valin in the film. Uh, and the moment in the film where he is uh, tied together with Roger Rabbit, this animated rabbit, who um, has kind of snuck into his home. And he is, he is connected to him by a pair of kind of police cuffs. And it's really that image, I think, isn't it? It's that sort of combined image uh, that we, we're taking to think about this relationship between fantasy and animation, that perhaps inseparable relationship between those two, those two things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, both of us are going to come at it from slightly different angles and hopefully find some nice third way in between the two of them. From my perspective, what I'm very keen to talk about with Who Framed Roger Rabbit is I cannot believe how many academic papers I've read about this uh, classic film that don't actually think about the fact that it's a fantasy film and it's very understandable from those perhaps outside the sort of vacuum like world of of fantasy studies Uh, I nearly confused the two things there we're two podcasts in I've forgotten which one I'm supposed to be Um, of fantasy studies uh, because fantasy studies is very sort of inclusive um, but also it's very uh, it speaks in a lot of shorthand and it assumes a lot of things and for those who are perhaps coming from Fantasy, to fantasy as an outsider, it's very easy to not think of this as a fantasy film. Obviously, it doesn't take place in any kind of alternative world necessarily, or at least not obviously. I think we're going to come to that a bit later on. Um, there's no dragons. It's not mythical. It's not Tolkien. It's not anything like that. But it's it's obviously a fantasy story if you look up any definition of what fantasy means, in that it's a story featuring a premise that is in itself self-consciously impossible. 
Um, and it's what we often call in fantasy studies a primary world fantasy in that it's set in a world very similar to our own with a few fantastic embellishments. So if you think of things like The Borrowers, okay, just as, uh, just as an example, The Borrowers is a primary world fantasy, apart from the premise that you're required to accept, um, accept that there are tiny people running around, everything about The Borrowers is very similar to a world we have once inhabited. Um, so this isn't secondary world fantasy, but it is definitely primary world fantasy. It is a constructed, self-consciously impossible world in which animation is made real. Um, and I think talking about it as a fantasy film is really important in terms of some of the um, ways we might think about how it's dealing with animation and animation history and all this other stuff. Uh, that, so that's where I'm coming at this from. What about you, Chris? I'm coming at it from the fact that I don't think the borrowers ever gave anything back. So they sort of stole rather than borrowed. But anyway, <laughs> um, my interest in the film is its two temporalities. Or it's, yeah, it's two temporalities. The fact that it is very much a film of the 1980s in so many ways, but it's it's also set in Hollywood in the, in the late 40s. So right at the start of the film, you get a sort of, um, I guess, a, what we might call a pre-credit sequence, but an animated pre-credit sequence. Uh, and then when the action sort of shifts and you realise you're not in a cartoon, you're, you're sort of in the production of a cartoon and you're really in a film studio, we then realise this is Hollywood in 1947. And these two temporalities, the 88, um, or the late 80s of its production uh, and the 40s setting, are sort of playing off of each other the whole way through. So you have the film's connection to film noir, so in the in the late 40s, a particularly rich uh, genre, if we could call it a genre. Many scholars haven't. They've called it a style or a zeitgeist or, or maybe in just a, a period of time. So you have the film tapping into a, a particularly um, resonant genre at that particular moment in the late 40s, and it uses that genre to tell the story of animation in the late 1980s. So it's set in... It, it, it's, it's, it's produced in 87, 88. This is a moment where uh, certainly animation within the UX context isn't particularly um, well thought of. And so hopefully we'll be, we'll be able to tease out today why this film is, is as much an example of an important animated movie within animation history, but it is also about that history at the same time. Great, yeah, okay, I think, um, so two very interesting points. I think it might be interesting to see if we combine the two and think about why tell that story in a fantasy setting um, as well, which will be great. So let's sort of kick things off. So as Chris mentioned, the film starts with this sort of uh, couple of minute um, animated short of Roger Rabbit and Baby Herman running around getting up to madcap, um, um, all kind of madcap opportunities, slapstick comedies, very reminiscent of sort of the early animation serials of the 20s, 30s and, and 40s. Although interestingly enough, I don't know if you picked up on this, I found it very Warner Brothers-esque yes. rather than Disney-esque in its aesthetic. Maybe yes. that's my... Uh, my lack of knowledge there, but it felt quite not a Disney cartoon. It was a it was a more anarchic cartoon. Yes, it's certainly it's very much in the mold of uh, Warner Brothers and the Looney Tunes, mm -hmm. and also to extend that out to kind of MGM. So particularly the fifties cartoons, forties and fifties cartoons, maybe even later uh, of Tom and Jerry, particularly the role of, of the owner's feet. Um, and that sort of image of, of just seeing the feet of the of the, the pet owner, if you like, or the, the the housewife, I think, in this instance. So yes, it's it's very much not a Disney film in this particular 
opening sequence. And yes, of course, it cites all of the um, kind of canonical Disney characters, I think, during the course of its nearly two-hour two hour runtime. But no, it's very much uh, tapping into a Warner Brothers-style aesthetic. Um, if Disney, and we've talked about this in a, in a previous podcast in terms of Snow White, thinking about Disney as realist or hyper-realist, here I think we have a much more um, kind of chaotic anarchy that is certainly... a, a it's certainly an identity that, that Warner Brothers animation at that time would have would have held in the 40s. Great. And then what we get, um, obviously, as this cartoon ends, is this moment of uh, rupture where we see uh, the director yell, cut. We see uh, Baby Herman switch persona and suddenly is this sort of gruff, cigar-smoking uh, louch. Uh, Roger is uh, reprimanded for not ha- not seeing stars. He gets his, he fluffs his lines. Uh, we're on a live film set and then the character's very uh, uh, clearly walk three-dimensionally towards the camera and out until this live film set. I think there's a lot of shots here of characters walking around space, which is very interesting, playing with 2D, 3D notions. And I want to just pause on this moment a little bit, because this is um, this is sort of my mantra about this movie. Um, t- to me, I've read a few essays um, on Roger Rabbit, and there's a really great one by an animation scholar called Alan Cholodenko, who talks about Roger Rabbit as sort of normalising the relationship between live action and animation by placing Bob Hoskins and Roger Rabbit in the same frame and allowing them to inhabit the same space. What the film arguably is doing is bringing these two technologies into closer dialogue and harmony with one another. My, My issue with that reading is that what I see in this moment as a fantasy scholar is Dorothy walking out of the house into Munchkin City. It's Alice walking out of uh, the bottom of the rabbit hole into Wonderland. It's the moment in the fantasy story that we often call, or fantasy scholars often call, the intrusive moment of the fantastic, where the narrative trips into a premise that the that the the reader, or in this case the viewer, is asked to buy as part of this fictional world, but obviously not part of the real world. And that premise is, is that animation is real. So I guess my, my, my interest in this is that what is happening for me in this moment is we're getting a fantasy of animation being as realistic or as real as live action. Uh, and the paradox of that. So is it that when the characters kind of cross that threshold between the world of animation as we've, we've been um, led to believe... And then they've moved into the the sort of area of deconstruction, the area of, of the of the industry, if you like. That transgression for for Cholodenko is is something that actually removes the transgression altogether. Yeah, that's right. For for for, for scholars like Cholodenko, that it removes the transgression of animation. I would argue being seen in the framework of a fantasy narrative, it actually spectacularizes that transgression. It makes the transgression all the more apparent because it narrativizes it. What it does is it asks us to ironically believe that animation is real and as real as live action, but it isn't, and that's the fantastic premise that the story resides around. Oz isn't real, it's not a real place, yet for the entire duration Dorothy walks around it, we're asked to accept the premise that it is. It's the same sort of mechanics going on here. So the film is is in, in some ways enacting out a kind of fantasy slash animation relationship through the kind of ontology of its of its images we are or or, or the exist the coexistence if you like these are every shot in the film which has a, is live action ostensibly but has a an animated intrusion um that coexistent relationship is one that we are we're, we we must see them as yes they share the same they share the same space but we're seeing it we we must we must believe in that 
in that coexistence at the same time as we always know that the that live action characters are different yeah. to animated characters. It's actually almost the opposite. If, if if realist fiction is about the suspension of disbelief, animation is sorry, I've done it again. Fantasy is about the uh, active engagement of disbelief. It's it's this this is impossible. What you are seeing on screen right now is impossible, and I and I dare you to enjoy it anyway. Um, and that's the sort of premise of, of fantasy. So I think there's an interesting thing here in that. For some reason, we don't like talking about this movie as a fantasy world, but it's quite clearly a fantasy world. Um, from that premise of animation being real to the whole picture of LA it presents, to the, the world of LA that's on screen, there's loads of little moments where um, it's, it's, it's showing you the rules of its storytelling in exactly the same way that you learn that the Munchkins live here and the Winkies live over here in Oz. It's, it's mapping out this alternative world in a very systematic, fantasy-like manner. This is telling us a story of a magic kingdom. It's just that magic kingdom happens to look a lot like urban L.A., in the 1940s. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's it's the role of integration in all of this. Yeah, mm -hmm. And a lot of the um, sort of behind-the-scenes stuff that you can... And there isn't that much on the film, but a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff is how did they actually get this this working relationship between Bob Hoskins and, and Roger Rabbit. And so you see lots of sort of footage of guns suspended by wires. Um, but what interests me is, is, is how integration is enacted. And we see these animated characters fully engaging with the you're sort of constantly pulled between separate they, these are separate characters and of course the live action human cannot engage with a, an animated character and yet at the same time there are really nice touches mm -hmm. that show uh, an animated character is able to leave fingerprints in the dust or is able to splash water um, and it's, it's these little touches that I, 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 I think are really rich spaces for thinking about uh, an, in, an integration that's happening and the, the work that's gone into the film on the part of Zemeckis, the director, Robert Zemeckis, the director, into, into how, to, how to achieve coexistence in a way that it is, that is believable and credible. But then at the same time, I always want to believe and want to know what these animated characters can do that is different at the same time. Sure. The word wonder comes to mind here um, in terms of wonder as a way of engaging with special effects um, and Michelle Pearson talks about this in her book on special effects actually in relation to CGI I think but we could perhaps talk about it in relation to Who Framed Roger Rabbit in that what wonder does as a concept is it makes us look at things that we know are impossible and then try to rationalize how they happen so a sort of an easy example if people didn't quite get that uh, the magician pulls a rabbit out of the hat you know that people can't pull rabbits out of hats. So you are required to rationalize and work out how that happened. And that involves guessing how on earth he tricked you into seeing that. And I think there's a lot of that going on here. The, the, the animators are and the filmmakers are daring you to work out what's going on behind the scenes in exactly the same way. So the way that you just described the rabbit out of the hat yeah. is ostensibly a definition of animation. You know, yeah. But to, to how, do we, how do we believe the flat space is three-dimensional? And actually, maybe that's what the introduction of the, the film plays with, is that we're seeing flat space that is enacted through false perspectives and vanishing points, as, as any good animated cartoon might do. Um, and then has a character walk out of that space into another quote-unquote real space that is that is the, the space of the film studio. So, yeah, that's interesting. That the definition of animation is actually a definition of a magic trick. And riffing on that, this is a film that comes out in the late 80s where animation culturally in the US is a little bit on the wane. It's certainly not respected. Is this pre... 
what we might call the Disney Renaissance? Yes. Or is it just during... Uh... It is just on... The, so, as, a, as I gestured at the, at the start, this film is, is produced in 87 for a, a, a December the 2nd, um, so Christmas release in 1988. So this film comes at a moment, as Alex said, where perhaps animation within the US, con US context isn't particularly well thought of. Um, retrospect I mean, this is very easy to map onto the film retrospectively, but the film comes out a year before two important milestones, really. The first is the release of Disney's The Little Mermaid, so 1989, um, a film that across Disney studies... So many books, many histories of the Disney studio as, a, as an animation facility talk about this is the moment where it creates a sort of second golden age or the Disney renaissance that would continue up until about 1994, 95 in some cases, depending on who you read, it extends a little bit later. The other important thing is that 1989 is also the premiere of The Simpsons. So you have these two interesting moments, the release of, of The Little Mermaid from the Disney studio uh, and then the first series of shorts of The Simpsons that would eventually become the, the, the kind of long-running television show. So these, these two moments, the Disney and The Simpsons, come together with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So over a course of a two-year period, 88 and 89, you've got, you've got animation returning. Um, and I do think that return is then folded into the film itself. So Roger Rabbit talks about wanting to, you know, this is what he's, his, his raison d'etre is to make people laugh. Um, and I do think he, he could be conceived as this embodiment of animation. His sole purpose in life uh, is to kind of create humour. Uh, and it's reminding through Roger Rabbit and through the many sort of Disney characters, Looney Tunes characters, Warner Brothers characters we see, that animation's kind of important. And it's funny and makes people laugh. So that's really interesting because the 1980s is also a decade where fantasy cinema is really hot on production, particularly in the early part of the decade, but, but it lasts for the whole decade where we get the production of sort of goofy, kitsch B-movie things, classics like Conan the Barbarian, uh, we get um, things like uh, Willow, these high fantasy movies that have a uh, never-ending story, or even sort of the, the primary world fantasies of things like The Goonies. These are all um, coming out of this period as well. So it's interesting. So what I would argue is what the film does is it, is it spectacularizes the medium of animation by placing it within a fantasy framework, by making it an object of wonder and fantasy in a story that that ironically normalizes it, it it makes it into a special effect again. It makes it into something that's worth our fascination again. And and I think the film's playing with that. Well, I mean, the technological aspect is this is also a period in the in the late eighties where. Uh, Pixar have already started making computer animated short movies, Luxo, Luxo Jr. in 1986, um, and then Tin Toy, and then Knick Knack. And so it's not just a reminder of animation, it's actually a reminder of cell animation. Yeah. And so you have Judge Doom as this character who, who is very much resistant to this wave. And he, at one point he says, I need to rein in this insanity. Um, and the way he does that is obviously to sort of um, deconstruct these, these animated cartoons by... Uh, dipping them in the dip, uh, which is comprised of, of what would normally be used to clean animated cells. So the, 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 the liquid that he uses is what would have been used to clean animation cells so that they could be reused. And so it's very much about, I mean, it is about animation, but particularly it's about cell animation. And that is an interesting reclaiming of, of cell animation. And while the Disney Renaissance did start to incorporate and one of its defining features, according to, to Chris Pallant and his book on Disney, is that it is also 
they're, they're, these films are about trying to integrate CGI technology, but they're also, hey, isn't cell animation a great thing as well? Yeah. So it's as much about cell animation, uh, more specifically, as it is about the animated medium, perhaps more broadly. Sure, really good point, really good point. It occurs to me we're uh, 18 minutes into the podcast and we, we're still in the first uh, opening three minutes, so perhaps we'll skip through the plot a little bit. I've got to be honest, I reckon I've seen this film about 10 times as a kid and didn't understand the plot whatsoever, and it's only in adulthood that I've come to understand the plot. So we'll sort of skip through it, and if we have points along the way, we'll um, we'll pause and talk about it. So we're introduced to our hero, Eddie Valiant, who's a sort of hard-boiled detective, uh, dead brother in the classic Sam Spade sort of dead partner mode. Um, his partner was killed by a toon. He hates toons. He hates humour. But he's hired to uh, snoop on the wife of a A-list um Toon star, Roger Rabbit, spy on Jessica Rabbit and capture them uh, having an affair or suspected affair by um, the studio head R.K. Maroon. Is that a riff on anyone I don't know? I was trying to work out the play on words. Maroon, is there a... or Probably, and hey, this is one of those moments where any listener... <laughs> any listeners, please <laughs> contact the, the website and let us know because it's got to be playing on something, right? I think um, so. There are so many, I mean in terms of intertextual references and uh, the way this film functions as a homage. I mean, it's obviously very easy to, to read these things into perhaps um, the way that the film works, but there's so much in there that I would be very surprised if these references to the Hollywood film industry, the the animation film industry, animation history, are not in some way kind of pointed outwards to, to kind of speak to um, the real world in some way. So, yeah. Okay, yeah, so he um, so he goes and spies on... Um... Jessica Rabbit, he goes to this sort of speakeasy run by Gorilla, Bouncers and Penguin Waiters, which I think is a reference to Mary Poppins, um, and spies Jessica Rabbit. We get that sort of classic moment where Jessica Rabbit is introduced as the femme fatale. She's Gilda, she's um, Rita Hayworth incarnate, she's voiced by Kathleen Turner. Yes, an uncredited Kathleen Turner. Oh really, I didn't know that. Okay. Yep. Um, so we get this sort of male fantasy in a different sense of the word um, on screen. Um, and then uh, he catches her uh, playing patacate literally, literally with uh, Acme, who's the sort of head of Acme Productions, who makes all these gadgets and owns Toontown. So here we go. This is a moment of, of uh, I'd like to pause on, the moment of world building. So we're living in a world where playing patacate with another man literally is grounds for adultery, yes. grounds for, and every single character in the uh, story plays it straight, whether live action or animation. Roger is beside himself with jealousy and rage. Uh, they, the others can't believe he's taking all these nudie photos. We get a shot of a detective sort of going, I can't believe you're involved in all this. Um, so we have a world here that's the 1940s noir, except um, we don't have adultery, we have uh, playground games as the version of it. So this is just one example of these little details where the film is constantly inviting you to see this as a world of fantasy. Um, and this becomes really important for the plot as we move on. Uh, I, I noticed Eddie's always drinking, and it's always it's only struck me on this viewing that why is he not smoking? He's not smoking because this is a PG thirteen movie, um, and drinking's okay, but smoking's not okay. Yes, this is certainly. I mean, this is the nineteen forties, but not the nineteen forties. Absolutely. Um, yes, no, that's a that's a good point. I mean, he certainly has his uh, his vices, and as you say, he's very much connected to kind of to the Humphrey Bogart model of noir hero heroism. Get this straight, Green Ball. I don't work for Jones. Mm. 
So what's his problem? Toon killed his brother. What? Huh? Dropped the piano on his head. Hi, everyone. Just uh, pausing the discussion briefly for a second, I've had a thought. What is it about all these animated fantasies? Well, whatever do you mean, Christopher? Well, they're fantasies that are animated. Animated films that are fantasies. They're everywhere. I'd suggest that perhaps someone should set up a research network they about should. that. They should. Do you know what? They should. They should set up a research network about that. If they wanted to do such a thing, what they would probably do is start a website at fantasy-animation.org. And, right. on, and on that website, what sort of stuff would you have on it? You'd probably have a pin board for sort of events that might dovetail with, with fantasy and animation. That sounds blimmin' useful. I mean, you'd probably have a blog, I'd have thought. <laughs> a blog containing all kinds of discussion of this sort of relationship between fantasy and animation. I think that's a brilliant idea. And if anyone hasn't done that, they should do. Well, I think they have, and it's at fantasy-animation.org. Uh, you can also follow that said network, uh, Fan Anim Research, on Twitter. So we'll get back to the show now and excite you with conversation. That's a better idea than the network. I'm always interested in what the film is doing It's in terms of its noirness, taking this quite serious um, 40s cycle genre style of movies and then connecting it with the, with the animation. What does the animation do to the noir? What does the noir due to the animation, I suppose. I mean, it still contains the elements that we we would know from these sorts of studio studio animation in America, uh, anthropomorphic animals and so forth. But it's it's really the... It's, it's as much a... Animation is not a genre, but it's it, it feels like a genre hybrid as much as, as anything, and it's with a parodic register as well. So it's, I think, as much uh, an intertext in terms of uh, genres and, and movies as it is a combination of live action and animation. Yeah, there's constant cameos, quote, notation marks there for the listeners who didn't see me do it live uh, in front of everyone, uh, in front of Chris here. Um, constant cameos by characters like Dumbo. Uh, we get Daffy Duck and Donald Duck playing dueling pianos. Actually, at one moment, and I don't know how they did this or why, I saw Br'er Bear from the Disney movie Song of the South walking around in the background, which is bizarre because Song of the South is a very troubled distribution history because it's basically a racist apologist film made in the um, the late 30s uh, by Disney, but it contains the sort of zippity doodah songs. Um, but why that character is featured in this film, I, I don't know. I thought Disney would have wanted to stay well clear of that, but maybe they were about to build Splash Mountain at the time hmm. and they felt the need to um, integrate him back into it. I also noticed with the pat back to the patty cake moment where he that's revealed, um, Chris is now nodding, listeners, so I feel like he's going to say some stuff more about this. But what we get, essentially, when he sh we're shown the photos, is a flipbook. Yeah. I'll, I, hand, I hand the mic to you. No, I mean, I mean you've, you've hijacked what I was going to say. <laughs> um, but no, I think that's absolutely right. When, when um, we are looking back over the, the black and white photographs that show um, Jessica Rabbit ostensibly engaging in her affair, if you like, the rapidity with which Roger Rabbit flicks through the, the black and white photographs suddenly transforms these still images into moving images uh, and therein enacts the performance uh, of animation. I also wanted to add that actually connected to that is that this idea of fantasy, perhaps, are we saying that fantasy is maybe embodied by the animation and that marks the, the kind of interlude? I also find it interesting that the Cartoons are them, are, and animation are themselves entertainment. Obviously, we have the, the production of a cartoon at the start of the of the film, um, but there are moments when uh, Eddie and Dolores and Roger are hiding out. They hide out in the cinema, 
And so, and there's all this kind of talk of Goofy and, and how entertaining he is. And climax of the film, Jessica Rabbit says that he's Roger Rabbit is better than Goofy. He's funnier than yeah. Goofy. In fact, there's lots of stuff about Goofy. And Roger watches the cartoon and says, like, "Oh, look at him! Look how he's taking that fall. He's such a master performer." So that's another sort of attempt to sort of um, highlight the quality of what's going on on screen. Roger's sort of speaking to him like he's an actor. But actually what it's also doing is valorizing the animation process and the, the way the performance is rendered on screen in the broader sense of the term, performance, the animated performance of Goofy. Yeah, so animation is, as you said, the spectacle as it is created for us as an audience. But also within the film, it, it's positioned as entertainment. You know, these, uh -huh. are, these are animated characters that walk around the back lot. They star in these movies. They are celebrities. Part of the credibility of the fictional world is that and certainly the fictional world of, of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, is that the characters themselves have the ability to ascend to a level of celebrity. And so there is a really interesting play with, as you say, issues of stardom, issues of animated performance. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think this is actually, in terms of some of the discourses, the, the stuff that's been written about animation and performance over the last five or six years, really, this might be a really interesting. We tend to begin animation performance, certainly within the contemporary context, uh, four years later with uh, Robin Williams in Aladdin, when actually we might think of, of issues of performance and stardom as beginning slightly early with, with a film like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Interesting. Absolutely fascinating, actually. And and so so this all plays out. We get um, this noir plot starting to unfold. Uh, Roger discovers that uh, his wife's um, played Pattygate on him. Um, he disappears off into the night and then we get the killing of Acme. Um, Acme left his uh, property, Toontown, to the tombs, but, but there's no will left. So we have a ticking clock device to sort of solve the mystery of, of who framed Roger Rabbit to try and take Toontown away from the tombs. Good title. Yeah, good title. Very good title. Um, so uh, I have a question. I mean, I have a question about, um, and this is strange coming from me, but a question about fantasy. Sure. Um, I'm thinking about the role of Toontown as a space that the film doesn't visit until quite a way in. Um, it's a film that we perhaps see bleed into the live action world in some way like we see and, and certainly the, the climax of the film where the partition between the two worlds is broken um, and so I'm thinking of of you mentioned earlier about a kind of portal or a way into the fantasy um, and I'm thinking about the role the role of Toontown is that how we how we asked to invest in Toontown as a as a separate so maybe this is about the film as the whole yeah. that the animation is is separate but also part of part of us or part of our world. So that's really interesting because I was thinking about, uh, there's a book by a fantasy scholar called Farrah Mendelssohn who basically tries to provide a rough taxonomy or sort of charting of the different ways in which fantasy writers communicate a sense of the fantastic to readers. And there's a few different devices she talks about, but some of the key ones that I think are really interesting for this film is the difference between what she calls... Um, a intrusive fantasy, um, a portal quest fantasy, and an immersive fantasy. So just to give you a definition very briefly of what those are, an intrusive fantasy story is a story in which reality is shattered by the introduction of something fantastic into an otherwise realistic space. So if Chris and I continue talking on this podcast and the door to our studio flies open and a leprechaun runs in, that is an intrusive moment of fantasy. Fantasy has an invaded reality. And that'll be, that's twice that's happened now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll have to pause the podcast and it's going to be a right faff to edit. 
After that, we have what's called the portal quest fantasy. So that's if characters travel into a space they don't know, and thus we share their alignment to learn about the unknownness of this space. So if the leprechaun bursts into the studio and tells me and Chris that we're the chosen ones and have to go on a magical land to get back his pot of gold, we're into a porthole quest narrative. You're following our journey as we engage with this new fantastic space. And the third thing, the immersive fantasy, is when we, the reader, are dropped into a world that is different from our own, but the characters treat it as if it were reality. So think of something like, um, well, sort of the Lord of the Rings, although there's elements of the Portal Quest in that, where you enter a world, everyone in that world knows the rules, but you have to learn the rules as you keep up. Why am I saying all this? Because I think the film plays with those three very interestingly. Particularly the first opening couple of reels, the film is mainly an immersive fantasy film. And what I mean by that is you are entering this alternative world where you have to pick up on the rules as you learn it. You have to learn that animation is real, that tunes are real things, that they are shot like live action films, that Roger Rabbit is a, Roger Rabbit, Roger Rabbit is a real person, all these kind of things. Um, there's even little moments. Did you spot this in the bar? I don't know if I'm going mad, but in the bar when... Uh, Eddie goes to visit Dolores and has a drink. He starts off with a little chaser of whiskey, and then suddenly he's drinking like a goldfish bowl of whiskey. The, and if you look around, they're all drinking these massive... It's like, it's like he's a sort of... They're playing with um, forced perspective, and they're giving a giant comedy glass of whiskey, and they're all drinking it. So there's these, just these little moments at every point that say, this is not reality. There's a wonderful line that I only, it took about seven goes to get the plot because as a 10-year-old I wasn't that immersed in American urban geopolitics. But there's this fantastic line in the film where they say, have you got a car, mister? And he says, uh, no, who needs a car in LA? It's got the best public transport system in the world. Which is, again is a gag. It's a gag of this fantastic, nostalgic world of LA that does not exist and, and probably has never existed. Um, so all this stuff is going on. So it's immersive. And then Toontown is the moment it trips into what we call... Um, a porthole quest. He goes on a journey. He steps into Oz. He steps down the Wonderland. And the whole grammar of the film changes. It goes from being a live-action film with animated elements to an animated film with a live-action character in it. I and pause now. Well, I was going to say, and that, yeah. that, it's that shift in register, perhaps, that changes the way that we understand the realism as perhaps embodied by the live-action character. So suddenly, we have well, having previously had animated characters inhabit uh, an ostensibly live-action space, here we have a live-action character who is subject to a different set of rules. Uh, the fictional world or the rules of the fictional world have shifted and suddenly his biology comes under attack and he becomes more and more animated. Um, he struggles with the rules of the game, if you like. He, he walks out and is suspended in a com kind of comical state of inertia before falling and is given a false fake parachute by Bugs Bunny and, and Mickey Mouse as he falls. And yet there's something quite in inconsequential about that space in a way. You know, the real world is a space where Eddie Valiant's brother can be killed, but Toontown is a space where he'll probably survive because, of, because it's animated. And, and that sort of shift in register changes how Eddie behaves and, and sort of marks a, a moment where his character shifts and ultimately he brings those animated qualities that have, have kind of penetrated him back into the real world. So as part of the, the, the film's final sequence, you have him perform, an, a, I mean it's not my favourite part in the film, but it's a part in the film nonetheless, where he performs uh, as effectively an animated character in order to make the, the, the villains laugh 
and laugh them to death sort of thing. So he brings the animation from Toontown back into the real world, starts acting out like a cartoon, uh, and that really saves him and, and the plot. And isn't that really interesting? And that what you get is when Eddie does that performance, you've got a live-action character doing an animated skit to animated audience members. Yes, who are being watched by a live-action audience in the cinema. Yeah, absolutely. And it's playing with almost, uh, I hate to use this big word, but the sort of the ethics of all of this. In that, that is a big what, word. In that we've got, we've got Eddie purposely knocking himself out with tons. I kept thinking, God, is that a ten-ton brick he's just whacked over himself? Is that an anvil he's just dropped on? Is That must hurt. But of course, it doesn't hurt the, the cartoons, because that's very firmly established. We get that moment where Rob, Roger Rabbit is dancing on the bar, very similarly actually to Eddie at the end, and he does the um, no pain, no pain, and he's, the record gets stuck and he keeps smashing himself on the head with plates. And mm. the plates are real and they smash, and there's a certain physicality to all that. So it's, it's interesting what it does with those two worlds, those two physical and, uh, I don't know, what's the word, laws of physics of the, of the animated world versus the the real world and, and how it plays with that. So if animation is, is or the received definition of animation is, is about the illusion of life, in a strange way this film gives us, gives us images of, of death at every turn. The, yeah. the premise of the film <laughs> is, is that Eddie Valiant is unable to sort of commit to his job in the way that he used to because his brother has died, his partner has died. Um, he's investigating uh, a murder Judge Doom, who we haven't really talked about, but he's this he's this character that wants to uh, annihilate Toontown uh, by dipping these these characters and, and and covering the whole world in this liquid that will that will desecrate it. And so it's really about the sort of death and of animation. Maybe that's also part of its nineteen eighties ness. So, so is this an allegory of sort of the the, the cultural waning of animation in Perhaps. mid nineteen? Was that too much? It's just I couldn't help that the plot obviously. Judge thingy, what's his name? Judge Doom. Judge, of course. Judge Doom. He's the villain. Yeah, yeah. Judge Badman's uh, plot uh, is to basically construct 1950s suburban society. It's to introduce freeways and motels and low-cost living and leisure complexes and mo and diners and the things that killed the movie industry. At the yeah, and, and this is set in 1947, the year before the Paramount decision, where the studios were forced to sort of break themselves up a bit. Yeah. So. I mean, it's, no, I don't think it's too much to, to read this as, a, as an allegory. It's certainly, it's certainly saying something about animation. I think it, it, given the amount of animated characters we see from both Disney and Warner Brothers, there's no way this is not a comment on the spectacle and, and the entertainment value of... Because the, the opening of the film is very entertaining. It's a terrific cartoon. Mm. Um, and so the end as well, that sort of ensemble where all the characters come out of Toontown and into the real world really marks a, a sort of celebration. It's, it's a musical number by any other name. It's a, it's a moment where you're sort of seeing the, the animated chorus. Um, and so I, I don't think you can help but read it as certainly certainly about, about the kind of, whether it's about the cultural value of animation, but certainly it's a celebration of the, uh, of the North American animation industry. Is it nostalgic? Well, I think it, part of that nostalgia is, is that it's a period piece, of course. It's, it's set in the 40s, as we've already said. Um, it's about... But it's, in many ways, it's about... Because, all, because most of the film looks like, and it was, you know, it's, it's part of it's filmed in the UK, but it's, it looks like it all takes place on a studio set, even the bits that aren't supposed to take place on a studio set. It looks like the backlot of Paramount or Universal or something. So it feels like it's, 
it's nostalgic, but it's also it, it's a film that's about the construction of nostalgia. It's about the construction of 1940s America. It's a it's about the construction of older cartoons. Um, we Roger Rabbit's and, and Jessica Rabbit and and the the villains. So so kind of Judge Doom's hench animals are the only original kind of characters. There are a few talking shoes and whatnot, but most of the animated characters that you see are characters with a, a pre-existing kind of cultural purchase. So it's interesting that it's it, it's about the illusion of life but an animation, but articulates that through these kind of consistent images uh, of death. And actually, Judge Doom talks quite openly about uh, one of the reasons he wants to get rid of the, the tunes is that he wants to rid the world of ridiculous talking mice, um, which is, you know, he's probably talking about Mickey Mouse. Absolutely, yeah. I, it's interesting... There's a bit of theory on sort of fantasy, and I'm thinking of um, a book by um, a scholar called Colin Manlove who talks about the sort of inherent conservatism of fantasy, in that fantasy is always about uh, it's always about wishing for something. Uh, it's always about um, expressing longing for and desires for alternative spates, and particularly that fantasy is often very pastoral and it's often very uh, celebration of sort of medieval culture or hierarchical society. Um, it's He's very often sort of seen as a very conservative looking back to days gone by, particularly when it got very popular in the 50s, this is post-war, um, looking back to a sort of quite problematic period of history and celebrating it with the sort of with, 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 the, with the rough edges taken off. And I wonder if this is sort of an urban version of that. What we're looking back on is a urban society pre-post-industrialization, if that makes sense, an industrial, uh, industrialized capitalism, big city, city dwellers, they go to the movie plexes, they watch cartoons before the birth of suburban life. And in a way, it's it's about that as well, isn't it? It's about a nostalgia for the 40s. So what does the this 40s mean? and the 50s, I guess, early 50s, late 40s. So I'm wondering what what the climax of the film and the and the sort of the resolution means within that fantasy slash animation slash nostalgia. Um, given that Doom doesn't succeed, the 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 the, yeah. port, the, the partition that separates Toontown with the with the real world with the 40 the real world of the 40s um, is broken down. Animation is being let into the world, if you like. Uh, and so I'm I'm sort of trying to reconcile the ending of the movie is. What's this saying? Well, I would argue that the ending of the movie therefore leaves the stasis of a world where Eddie Valin doesn't have to own a car because the public transport system in LA is so good. Yeah. Still intact. Or he can hop in a, a cartoon car. Yeah, absolutely. It, it leaves that fantasy world intact. And again, like what what that that's what you know. Conservatism is a restor restoration to a previous stasis, and it's allowed to stay intact. And it's allowed to stay intact through a a cartoon vernacular that is very entrenched in that same period. I mean, this is where my animation history knowledge lets me down a little bit. But for me, it's very interesting that it's actually not, it's not Snow White that this thing is celebrating. It's not the 30s, it's its sort of 40s, 50s yes. cartoons. The That's All Folks, the Looney Tunes. It's, it's that era that it's well, it, really in love with. But it has, I think it has to be, it has to be in love with that era because by the time, so Snow White has come out, um, Ten years before, about a decade before the film is set, okay. um, and so what we're what we're seeing is is this forties with a nod to the fifties, perhaps setting of the film is very much the the industry of animation. We've had 
we've had the sort of animation pioneers and they're working as individual artists working on paper. Here we have the kind of mechanical reproduction of animated cartoons that are painted on sails and that's that's ironically what makes them for Judge Doom more disposable because they're now not pen and paper or pencil on paper. They are painted the, the paint and ink club. Yeah. The animation is the the animation industry could be could be the paint and ink club. It's it's where we see the spectacle of animation and, and but what makes it kind of iconic is what makes it, I guess, uh, yeah, disposable. So so we're saying that this is a film that's celebrating the high point of the animating industry rather than a sort of celebration of animation as a feature art. It's it's not it's not in love with the feature art form of animation. Not that it has to be. There's no reason why it, it needs to be. But it's not a film that's reclaiming the Disney feature or even the animated feature. There's not, I mean, there's Dumbo in it. There's things like that. But what it's really in love with is the slapstick. It's the Acme singing swords, the uh, disappearing, reappearing ink. Yes. Um, well, that's a, that's an interesting, you know, the animation disappeared but reappears. You know, yeah. it's, it's about let's let's go there. Um, and so, um, but actually, I think this, this speaks to a broader question that we, we're thinking about. If one of the nuances of the fantasy animation intersection is perhaps the role of nostalgia, perhaps. Uh -huh. um, and that might be something that we'll, we'll think on. And I guess this is the only period, well, this is one of the first periods in history where people can be nostalgic about animation because this is one of the first periods of history when people have grown up in a world of animation. Yes. So, you know, the, the people, the, the sort of studio heads in 1980s are the people that were watching these cartoons when they were children in the 30s. You certainly get a sense, I think, of the, the adults in the movie. The, the, the industry is run by kind of white men. And yeah. certainly there's a sense, if you look around their offices, so if you look around um, the Maroon Cartoon Studios walls, you'll see these, these cartoon posters that are certainly giving an indication that this is a world with a highly animated history that is perhaps itself on the wane. Um, but like, like the, the, the Invisible Ink, it's sort of coming back and, and coming into view. I have one final point that doesn't relate to anything you just said. I've decided to introduce a new feature onto the podcast because I did this last week and it's called the Alex Sargent Superfluous Wizard of Oz Reference um, of the Week or As Woo Woo. As Woo Woo. Um, so last week I talked about the ma magic mirror uh, looking like Oz. This, one I've, this one's better. When Judge Doom dies, he screams, I'm melting, I'm melting, what a world, what a world. Just like the Wicked Witch of the West and the Wizard of Oz. So this is, this is as much about the, the history of animation as actually probably about the history of, of well, certainly the, the, the fantasy film. Mm. That's an iconic fantasy film. Uh, interesting that, the, that in his moment of peril, yeah. the uh, tune masquerading as a human turns to the fantasies film as a, as a way to sort of proclaim his last words. Yeah, well done for making that back to the point of this podcast rather than just a superfluous reference. Uh, you I, are I, I, sort of, I sort of understood those and I think I agree with it, but I also just wanted to say that. Great. Um, any last thoughts on Who Framed Roger Rabbit? No. Um, I still... I still think the film is could be read kind of allegorically, metaphorically for a particular yeah. kind of period of, of, of uh, American history and it would be interesting to to have experienced it not in this retrospective way to think about how this film was received and certainly uh, indications are that it was well received mm -hmm. um, and it is very easy to place it retrospectively into a history of animation um, and at, at the start of a, of a 
I guess a high point of animation that was still in, which is great. Um, but I would be interested to, to learn a bit more about the film and to see yeah. how it was how it was being received and, and whether it did really whether this is a false memory, you know, whether th- whether this it's it's kind of not as um, I guess landmark as we might think it is. I, my feeling is that it is, but it would be interesting to see how it was received within the context of the late eighties and uh, or whether this this kind of landmark status as a, as an animated fantasy is is slightly more illusory. But there we go. Sure. Yeah, and I think from my perspective, I would reinforce what I said. Is I just think it's really important that we we contextualise all of what we're saying about this movie's attempt to celebrate animation history within its functioning as a work of fantasy. Yeah. And we haven't even men- mentioned the director, Robert, Robert Zemeckis, but Zemeckis is very well known in the 90s for sort of using digital animation in a way that's far less intrusive than this. Right. So I'm thinking of the feather in... Uh, Forrest Gump, which people don't realise is animation. To me, that is an attempt to integrate animation and live action. This is an attempt to disintegrate live action and animation and spectacularise animation in the process. Uh, Animation becomes the object of wonder throughout this movie that we're asked to gaze at and see as a miracle. Um, and, And that, to me, makes the film work its spell if it still does that. Wonderful. What a perfect place to end. Right, well, thank you very much. We don't quite know when we'll next be back, but it will hopefully be soon, and we look forward to talking to you more about fantasy animation then. Take care, listeners. Bye. Okay, move along. There's nothing else to see. That's all, folks. I like the sound of that. That's all, folks. <laughs>